Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be with you again as we continue our practice period with the exploration of living by vow. So, today I'd like to talk about the Bodhisattva vow, what it is, and how we live by it. In his book, Living by Vow, Shohaku Okamura says, vow comes from the deepest part of the self. Intellectually, it seems impossible. But from our deep life force, we can't help but say, yes, I will. The Bodhisattva vow is the defining aspect of Mahayana Buddhism. We practice not just to relieve our own suffering, but also to relieve the suffering of all beings. But this vow established its roots long before Mahayana Buddhism with the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree. What he realized was essentially dependent arising and the Four Noble Truths, which are actually intimately connected. And the words for what he realized are simple to say, but not necessarily uh, simple to understand. So at first he thought he might just enjoy his enlightenment. But then as he thought about it, he realized there might be some people who were ready to hear what he had to say and profit from what he had to say. Um, so that is so fortunate for all of us that he did decide to go ahead and teach uh, the Pali Canon records this decision with these words. The gateway of ambrosia is thrown open for those who have ears to hear. Shohaku Okamura says that the Buddha's decision to teach was the origin of the Bodhisattva vow. He lived by this vow from the time of his enlightenment until his death. Shohaku Okamura in his book, Living by Vow, says that the four vows were originally directly connected to the four truths. These original vows were, I vow to enable people to be released from the truth of suffering. I vow to enable people to understand the truth of the origin of suffering. I vow to enable people to peacefully settle down in the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. I vow to enable people to enter the cessation of suffering that is nirvana. So you can hear the echo of the Four Noble Truths in the Bodhisattva vow as we say it today. We begin by taking the vow as individuals. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. This refers to the first noble truth. We vow to free all beings from suffering. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. This refers to the second noble truth. Delusion and ignorance is the cause of suffering. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. 
This refers to, to the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, as the end to suffering. The Dharma gates we enter are sometimes the ones life presents to us. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. This refers to the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold, uh, uh, the eightfold Path consists of right view. And by the way, I want to say that the term right, uh, in, uh, as it's presented in the Eightfold Path, uh, probably a, a better word might be skillful. So more like skillful view. It's, it's, not a, uh, it's not referring to morality, right and wrong. But the Eightfold Path is right view, which is deep understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, right thinking or intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. The Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path are the substance of our Bodhisattva vow. Incorporating into our lives uh, is uh, incorporating it into our lives is a never-ending Dharma gate. And I'd like to share something I learned from Peg when I asked her about the Four Noble Truths. She says, "It is not a step-by-step -step path that is first conquering right view, then the next step, and so on. These aspects of the path are more like dimensions than a linear sequence." This is partly why the Buddha thought it was too subtle, complex, and profound to teach. But subtle and profound as it is, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are the essence of our Bodhisattva vow. Our practice as Bodhisattvas is to realize the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path in our own lives and to share it with others. Some of us teach, but all of us can share it by the way we live our lives and interact with our fellow human beings. At Apamata, we recite the vow together regularly, and it's usually preceded by the repentance chant and the refuge chant. Repentance and taking refuge, the refuges support us as we commit to living by vow in our daily lives. So the repentance chant uh, goes, all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow. Okamura describes, describes the relationship between repentance and vow. He says, each of the four bodhisattva vows is a kind of paradox or contradiction. It is impossible to accomplish or completely achieve the vows. Since we are working at something infinite and absolute, it is important to reflect on the fact that we can never accomplish it. We cannot be perfect. This awakening to our own imperfection is repentance. So we live by vow humbly, wholeheartedly doing the best we can. Okamura says that vow and repentance are two kinds of energy that function together. The energy of repentance enables us to avoid arrogance as we practice living by vow. We practice living by vow with the awareness of how similar we are to others rather than with any idea of superiority. Okamura says, 
To save all beings means to be one with all beings. Chanting repentance reminds us of this. Peg says about repentance, it is not intended to invoke shame, blame, guilt, or recrimination. A better word would probably be acknowledgement or acceptance. So we also live by vow supported by the refuges. As individuals, we chant, I take refuge in Buddha, take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha. We are never alone as we live by vow. We are always supported. On the Appamata website, Peg describes taking refuge. She says, there are three reliable places we can find enduring support, care, and guidance on our path of waking up and growing up together. The first is the Buddha, which means not only the historical figure who inspires and illuminates our path, but the Buddha nature within us all. The eternal light that is our very life. The second is the, is the Dharma, which means not only the brilliant teachings of the historical Buddha, but also the wisdom teachings of the awakened teachers, men and women who followed in his path and the teachings we are offered in every moment of our experience in our daily lives. The third is the Sangha, which means not only the community of practice here at Appamata, but all sincere followers of the Buddhist path. And ultimately, that means all living beings. As we live by vow, we are well supported by Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Traditionally, each verse of the Bodhisattva vow is repeated three times from the point of view of the individual. But at Appamata, we recite them a little differently. First, we offer the vow as individuals. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to embody it. Then we offer the vow together as a group. Beings are numberless, we vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, we vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, we vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. We vow to embody it. And in the third verse, we acknowledge the vastness of vow. We say, beings are numberless. This vow frees them all. Delusions are inexhaustible. This vow ends them all. Dharma gates are boundless. This vow enters them all. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. This vow embodies it. In her annotations to the chants on the website, Peg describes her process of reformulating the vows to I, we, and this vow. And the reformation applies to repentance and the refuges as well. Website, she says, an evolution of the morning chants appeared to me in a deep period of Zazen. In this new form, each chant begins with the personal, then opens out to the collective we, and then beyond that, to all being and the power of vow itself. 
It connects our intention and aspiration to our larger place in the world beyond our self-centered concerns and transforms our vows from something overwhelming and impossible, a solitary hero's journey, to something enacted together through the power of vow itself. And uh, Shohaku Okamura also acknowledges the collective aspect of vow. And he says, we are small living beings like toads. And yet when we practice with the Sangha, we are not individuals, but part of the ocean of beings of all existence. And he also acknowledges the vastness of vow when he says, even a small act by a small person manifests a universal reality which is the reality of our life. Any effort, however small, is enough. We do what we can in this moment, and then in the next moment, and then tomorrow, one moment at a time. So this is how we live by vow. We acknowledge our foibles and accept our limitations when we repeat the repentance, the re repentance verse. Nonetheless, Supported by Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, we offer what we can to the world. We make this offering from awareness of our deep connection to all of life. We take refuge in and accept the support of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And to me, it seems that the robe chant expresses what it means to take refuge. Vast as a robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. We sit Zazen in support of vow. In Zazen, we begin to live the vastness and interconnectedness of everything. And we begin to see our habitual conditioning and how it can harm ourselves and others. We practice the Dharma in our lives because it relieves not only our suffering, but the suffering of others. We apply the Dharma of the Four Noble Truths, the precepts and the perfections to our daily lives. I learned from Peg that the precepts are what a bodhisattva avoids and the perfections or paramitas are practices to cultivate the good and the perfection of the Buddha way. We take this vow as part of the Sangha and support each other all along the way. We live by vow, not from a sense of separateness, but from a realization of how deeply connected we are to one another. And so there's another aspect of living by vow. Dogen talks about the three mental attitudes for practitioners in Zen monasteries. The attitudes are joyful mind, parental or nurturing mind, and magnanimous mind. And Okamura says that these are also the attitudes of a bodhisattva. So joyful mind. Dogen describes this as a happy heart. It is the joy that we are a living human being practicing the Buddha way. It is only in a human life that we develop way-seeking mind and bodhicitta, 
There is such joy in the simple miracle of just being alive. There is so much joy as we practice the Buddha way together, living life more and more deeply. I think we find a description of this kind of joy in, in the Bodhisattva's vow by Tore Zinji, which we uh, have been chanting every morning lately. He says, when I, a student of the way, look at the real form of the universe, all is a never failing manifestation of the mysterious truth of the awakened life. In any event, in any moment, and in any practice, none, uh, in any event, in any moment, and in any place, none can be other than the marvelous revelation of this glorious light. This joy is not about our preferences, our likes or dislikes. It's not necessarily an emotion. It may or may not be accompanied by a smile. It is an undercurrent that runs through everything. To me, it is a deep engagement with life. As bodhisattvas, as human beings, we encounter people who suffer and sometimes we ourselves suffer. The undercurrent of joyful mind supports us in all we encounter. Parental or nourishing or nurture, parental or nurturing mind. Dogen describes this as a caregiver's mind. Actually, we provide mutual care for one another. But Dogen is identifying the mind of a mother or a father providing selfless care to a beloved child. This is a mind of loving kindness we bodhisattvas allow to grow and evolve as we address whatever suffering comes before us. Loving kindness practice can support the evol uh, loving kindness practice can support the evolution of our nurturing mind. There is loving kindness meditation practice. It uses a series of phrases offering loving kindness to ourselves and others. And there is Brahma Bihara meditation practice. With this practice, we radiate benevolence, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity endlessly to all beings. Both of these practices help us to develop the nurturing mind of a bodhisattva. Magnanimous mind. Dogen says, as for what is called magnanimous mind, this mind is like the great mountains or like the great ocean. It is not biased or a contentious mind. Okamura says we must try to see the whole situation and our place in it. Magnanimous mind is so important to living by vow. We develop a sense of kindness and compassion, even for people we may not like. After all, we all suffer from greed, hate, and delusion. There is no place for a sense of superiority or, separ or separation as we live by vow. This mind requires us to develop generosity and patience. Magnanimous mind has a sense of connection and kinship with all beings. So joyful mind, parental or nurturing mind, and magnanimous mind. These are the minds we use and develop as we live by vow. 
each and every bodhisattva has our own share of the work to be done to relieve suffering. We each have our own capabilities, our own gifts to offer. We approach the world with a sense of connection to one another. It is from this sense of connection that thou arises. As we sit zazen and as we practice the Dharma, compassion and wisdom grow. We offer what we can when the time is right, just because we can. It's like the image in the koan about reaching back for your pillow in the night. There's no fuss or bother in this action. We don't congratulate ourselves or feel we've done something special. As we live our daily life, we gradually learn to drop the self-centered drain, attune to life itself, and simply do whatever is right in front of us to be done. This is living by vow. And I'd like to close um, with Peg's word about Peg's words about vow. It is not a vow we take. It is a vow that has taken us, turned us into a vehicle for the mysterious transformation of beings. We are not the agents of this transformation. We are the instruments by which vow frees beings, cuts through delusions, enters the moment's Dharma gate, and realizes the Buddha way in this world, in this place, and in this time, we can relax. So thank you so much uh, for being here and for listening. And in the time we have left, I'd like to open up the floor uh, to any question or comment you may have, but also specifically, how do you live, how do you, uh, live now in your daily life? I'd love to hear about that. I'll speak. Okay, Camp. She's going to speak. And I, I think probably the most honest answer is I have no idea. There's this uh, element to vow that, um, you know, as you said at the end, that uh, has its own uh, being, and then we become an instrument. I, I really like that that idea. You know, just like when I'm making art. You know, I can pretend like I know what I'm doing, but something else is doing it. And, um, you know, the, the other morning, I uh, I quit this whole business in the middle of the night, and then I wasn't going to come. And then you know, something happened. I set my alarm for 8.30, and I woke up at like 5.20, you know. And something happened, and something brought me here. and. It's, that's really the beauty of the process that you, you just don't know. So anyway, that's my uh, contribution. Thank you. And I see Joel's hand. 
I want to thank you so much for uh, this lovely talk. It's really very moving. Uh, I, I want to try and answer your question. And all I can say is basically what, what Kim just said, that for me, um, uh, if I am trying to live by vow, I get all tangled up in my feet and, you know, and my hands don't do what I want to do. And, and, and uh, I've heard Flint say, uh, love brings up everything that is its opposite. Uh, and the same thing happens with me. If I'm focusing on uh, what I need to do, uh, I have a lot, a lot more trouble than if I just am able to uh, appreciate what's going on, appreciate the shared humanity that we have, all the, all the minds that you were pointing to that Dogen talks about, the joyful mind, the nurturing mind and uh, magnanimous mind. I mean, I, I certainly have a lot of mind that is none of those things, but to the extent that I can remember them or that they can act through me, where, where it's not, it's saying I remember them is the wrong thing, but they, but they have a way of acting uh, through me, through uh, the people that I meet on the street and, and the, uh, all those who are, are doing their best to awaken and to help others to awaken and and that's happening all around and there's you know the birds in the sky and the, the clouds in the sky and all these beautiful things unfolding every moment that that i find support me in in being joyously awake and and trying to make my life available to the vow so <laughs> thanks for bearing through all of that thank you joel I see Anne's hand. It's a really interesting question. How does it, how do, how does the vow manifest in my life or how do I carry it out or, um, and in thinking about that, I, I came up with gratitude if, trying to stay aware of gratitude because like Joel was saying, there's so many things to be amazed by. There's so many things to be grateful for. Kind of the same things. Um, so I think trying to, to remain aware of, of gratitude every moment, what there is that I'm, I'm grateful for. But also I wanted to say, I kind of have started playing with beings are numberless, I vow to free us. And so, um, and just to see how that feels. Yeah. about that. Yeah. Then me being separate. Yeah. Becky, I see your hand. Uh, yes, Ellen, what a wonderful, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I think that the, the, the part that feels pretty clear to me is, is to 
try to always be aware of how open my heart is. Because through teachings, through experience, there are ways that we can recognize that and allow it to be more open. And that, that when I step beyond myself in the world in any kind of way, like whether it's, you know, heading out my door to go to the dining room here or whatever, that it is imperative for me almost to check how, how open is my heart? Where are the places that it isn't? How, when that, because when our hearts aren't open, then we don't stay open to the possibilities of what can happen. We don't, we don't see other people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's a real big one. And one of the things like that you were talking about that I think is really intrinsic as well is joy. And, and as you were saying, it's not really an emotion. It really like, I, to me, what I experience is that, is that like love, like beauty, like grace, that there are many things that just are out there in the universe. And that's what we call them. That's what we call our experience of it. But joy is one of those that I think is a part of the universal energetic exchange that's going on somehow. And that every, every being and every, every, every thing like water and, and, and stones and all all of those that transmit energy are always aware of that, of, of, of beauty, of, of grace, of joy, uh, of love. So that's, that's what I try to take with me, is being open to it. Thank you, Becky. I'll say something. Susan back there? That's me, yeah. Hello. Thank you. I loved your talk. Um, Especially a couple of really simple uh, points you made about um, right means being really skillful means. And I find even that substitution helps me to appreciate um, um, those things. And then the um, idea that the repentance is really acknowledgement. But it also made me think about um, a Zen teacher once who said to me, the way he thinks about that first vow is um, beans are numberless, I got to free them from myself. And so <laughs> a point of practice for me is to, um, in my, you know, everyday life, look, everything is a Dharma gate. And in particular, my interactions with people and something I find myself thinking about a lot is what is my role in um, creating more space or possibility for their freedom from me and from whatever suffering, but you know, whatever suffering I might be prompting, you know, what's my role here? And, you know, that even feels very uh, uh, mysterious to me, something I could probably ponder forever, but that's one of the ways in which I really kind of bring the vows into my life. So, thank you. Thank you, Susan. 
I see Rosemarie. Hi, Ellen, and thank you. Um, so the first thing that came to mind is um, in situations that I, um, and this came from the precepts, that I, in whatever I'm experiencing, that I widen my container, I guess, to include the other person mm -hmm. and what, what's going on with them. Um, that was a huge thing for me. Starting the practice, the um, repentance vow was huge for me in beginning to look at myself. I mean, that was the beginning of my practice. And um, following that, and I love the way in our service, that's followed by the, um, the refuges, because it's a big thing to look at yourself in that kind of depth. And uh, the refuges are a place to rest and know that you're not, you're not alone and you're supported. And of course, that, that extends to the Sangha. Um, and the other piece more recently is asking myself about whatever's going on. Well, what's your intention here? And that happened to me recently with this little Dharma talk that I was um, preparing, where I was overly pressured about it and overly preparing. And I had a little talk with myself and said, well, well, what's your intention here? Are you giving a little performance? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> and I took a backward step and said, okay, well, what you're doing is um, being a vehicle. Okay, that's a big step back for these with these teachings for these teachings to my friends, and that was that was a big shift. So, um, yeah, that's like an ongoing process. But anyway, those are a few ways that I try to live by vow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anybody else? I want to add on to what Rosemarie said. Okay. The the power of the repentance about all my ancient twisted karma from beginning's greed, hate, and illusion. I kind of you know forget that you know its initial impact. Um, and I remember one of my sons when he was a teenager hearing that vow saying, oh, "I don't like that." You know, <laughs> there's something very strong about it, and so turning toward those things is a super important move. It is. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions, comments, or how do you live by vow every day? How does it show up? Anybody else? Uh, yeah, Mark. Nice to see you here. I don't think I've met you before. This is my first time I talk with this group. Um, I was in the meditation earlier. Uh -huh. um, so what really strikes me is the loving kindness aspect of the talk you mentioned. Um, it reminds me also because of the orientation I went to this morning, just having memory of my cat Callie, who is deceased now. She was um, very much that motherly figure you would want. And she cares to me in all my practice. She never um, was in with me later in my first sangha, but she was there at the beginning of it. And then she passed, but she's always been with me whenever I've been in Sangha because she just that was her she just was there for me and so I really carry that whenever I'm trying to think of to just be passionate towards other people or just even to myself 
the first holiday ghost who is my cat Callie as she was so loving and kind to everybody, including little children who would pull her tail and pull at her. I mean, she was, it when she finally snapped at my nephew, it took probably about five years of him just going after her. And she finally had enough and she just did it, but she even did it in a gentle way. She just tapped him on, on, his, on the back of his hand, but not even hard, just enough to just say, I'm done. You need to leave. So she was always gentle, even throughout some of the most torment that you could think could put a cat through. So I always think of her whenever I need to step back and think, what would Callie do at this time period? How would she want me to act through all the kindness she showed me from the time I first met her to the time I watched her die? That was very touching. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. What a great role model you've had in your life, huh? <laughs> Any more comments? Questions? Anything? Well, it's good to see everybody, and I guess uh, it's time to close. <laughs>